Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. We start with BC's reopening plan, BC's vaccinations going up, COVID cases coming down. That's what we got coming up later this afternoon. The reopening plan in British Columbia, restaurants, bars, pubs, churches, synagogues, mosques, are they all set to reopen? Have a listen to this here now. This is Premier John Horkins uh, speaking just a few days ago of what people can expect to hear this afternoon. Here's Horgan. They can expect on Tuesday that the circuit breaker will be over and a roadmap will be laid out for all British Columbians to see. This is great news for young people who, as Bonnie has said, want to get on with their lives. It's great news for entrepreneurs. It's great news for workers. It's great news for adults, whether they're people of faith who are yearning to get back to their temples, to their churches, to their gurdwaras, uh, people who want to get back onto the field and play a game, people who want to travel to their home or their summer homes in other parts of the province. All of that is just around the corner, but it has to be a slow and methodical approach. Uh, we're confident that come July, we're going to be in a much better place. Okay, Premier John Horgan, and that announcement coming this afternoon at 1 p.m. CKNW will bring you that live. But right now, let's talk about what we can expect to hear from the reopening plan this afternoon. Jeff Guinard is my guest, Executive Director of Able BC. They represent the bars and pubs in British Columbia. I'm pleased to welcome him back. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Mike. How you doing? Thanks a lot for coming on. Are you expecting to hear this afternoon that bars and pubs will be allowed to reopen for indoor service? We are, um, although it's quite confusing and, and it's frustrating for industry. If you look at last week when the Premier said the order um, is going to expire, which it did last night at midnight, uh, right. that means as of right now, legally, you're allowed to open for indoor dining service in British Columbia. But the the insanity about all that is when asked about that directly, he, you know, he and the Minister of Health and Dr. Henry all just avoided answering the specific question of whether you can reopen and told people to wait until Tuesday. So we're basically most of the industry is following an order that doesn't exist right now uh, and just holding off for the premier to articulate the path forward. Uh, But we're expecting today that he'll clarify those comments, which we wish he had done last week. would have been easier to plan, but um, I think they were concerned if they they told people that the order was going to expire and that you could resume indoor dining. People would have misbehaved over the weekend, right, and to compromise some of the work we've been doing. Okay, so you have not received any kind of advance notice as an association representing bars and pubs. Like, look, you know, like quite often government will do that. It'll give you a heads up behind the scenes. They haven't done that for you? Yeah, they're playing the cards pretty close to their chest. I do have uh, a briefing in about a half an hour where we're going to get a bit of a head start on, okay. uh, on what's happening, and then we can get our, our messages ready for industry. But, um, yeah, no no one uh, knows in this particular time, which is it's weird that we're treating it like a state secret, uh, given that yeah. all of us have been just waiting to find out, like, what do you want to do? And I, I think from the hospitality industry's perspective, I mean, pubs and bars and restaurants, yeah, I remember feel like they've stepped up over and over and over again. Um, they've not been a significant source of transmission, so we'll, we'll do whatever we need to do, right? But it's uh, without getting that information, it's hard for us to plan. But today, I think we're going to get um, some details on you know indoor dining, and then maybe a path forward to look at reducing restrictions in the future, right? Because all those things you see, like we can't serve alcohol past 10 p.m. and, and group sizes and distancing, 
as more people get vaccinated and hospitalization rates go down, and um, we'll be able to look at it's changing some of those. So we, we hope that's what's working here today. Okay, I've just been corresponding this morning with Ian Tostenson, your colleague mm-hmm. over at the uh, BC Restaurant Association, yeah, and he tells me that uh, a lot of BC restaurants are open right now. Like there are some restaurants that open for breakfast this morning. Yeah. So even yeah, if, and- even before they, they got the official word. And who can blame them, right? I mean, the, oh, yeah. the order technically expired at midnight. And here's what's a little bit stupid about this, if you think it's true. I mean, that order, the public health order, um, that's where things like banning and indoor dining and requirements to keep two meters distance between patrons and tables of more than six and all that, all of those rules have expired. So a few hours, for these few hours, <laughs> the rules are technically what they used to be prior to the pandemic. Now, no one expects that's what government wants us to do. Um, and I sort of feel like their communication strategy is, is ahead of their legal strategy on this and that he could catch yeah. up. But you can't ask industry to follow a law that doesn't exist, right? And um, But most people this morning, I, I think, are mixed. Uh, when we speak to our members, it's maybe 50-50, right? A bunch of places are opening, a bunch aren't. Mm. Um, and some of them will be planning to open over the next few days. But a lot of people are just cautious, right? And we want to do the right thing. So we're waiting to hear what the Premier says at um, early this afternoon. Okay, it's weird. It's a weird guessing game to be playing with uh, businesses that have been really struggling through this pandemic. In my in my opinion, like what what is the uh, legal opening time for bars? Like when can you start serving alcohol? What time? Nine a.m. Um, Nine a.m. Oh, sorry. oh wow. uh, sorry, eleven a.m. Excuse me. Oh, eleven. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I was just gonna say, man, I didn't think you could get a drink that early, but okay. No, so eleven. Pandemic, you want one at nine a.m. Yeah. It's not until yeah. eleven. But Eleven. Okay. For the bars and, and pubs and restaurants out there who've been struggling financially throughout this, I mean, eighty percent of the industry is losing money month over month. Right? I mean, when we're through this, you're going to see the industry looks a lot different. We're probably going to lose about a third of it. Um, just because wow. there's, there's not enough business. Yeah, it's it's quite stark, right? So messing around and not giving us clarity is it's really frustrating. Like we're. Just tell us what you want to do so we can make plans, right? And we have to recall staff. We have to order ingredients, right? Yeah. But I think from government's perspective, they're, they're less concerned uh, sometimes about the financial health of the industry overall. They don't see that taking a few days is going to be that big of a deal. They, they're, they're fine with a slower rollout, and it's, uh, it's our job to try and help convince them otherwise. Okay, speaking of Jeff Green already represents the bars and pubs in B.C., let's listen to this clip from Dr. Bonnie Henry the other day. Jeff, here she is talking about the reopening plan. It will happen slowly and gradually, and we'll pause and watch and make sure that we're not seeing a resurgence of disease as we get through this next little while, as we know that it takes some time before full protection as well from immunization. So don't expect to see on one day everything's going to come back. It's going to be gradually increasing in all different areas over a period of weeks and months. Okay, how do you interpret that? Like if she's saying it's going to happen gradually could it possibly be they will announce bars and pubs can reopen for indoor service but with just with limited seating or what yeah everything's on the table right now right and th- these are all the questions that we have but it, what i look at though is there's there's a number of things in that order right i mean it's not just indoor dining uh i'd imagine that we're going to resume indoor dining with the same restrictions we had several weeks ago right i mean keeping tables two meters apart groups of no more than six etc um, but there's also rules around, like, why can we not serve alcohol past 10 p.m. now, right? There's no no logic around the viral transmission around that anymore. The logic is changing on that. So that's something we'd expect at some point, right? There's certain kinds of businesses like nightclubs, which I, I don't expect to be reopened today. Um, it's a, a business yeah. model based on cramming large numbers of people into a room and not following social distancing guidelines. So that'll be probably um, down the, 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 the train a little bit uh, still. So we've got... You know, several steps we can take. And I think the first one is restoring their dining. 
Uh, then maybe look at um, you know extending those hours to midnight or a little later. Then we look at maybe changing group sizes so we can see the party of eight. And then eventually, many months from now, when more folks are vaccinated, you can imagine that the distancing uh, would change as well, right? But it's not just our businesses. It's also um, you know, the protocols for gyms and the protocols for travel and all that. And I think it's the premier's analogy is a good one that he's used. It's not a switch. It's a dial. Yes, yeah, a dimmer switch. Yeah, it's exactly. the dim- it's the dimmer switch. Um, the restaurant sector also some concerns about the lack of clarity on on the plan here going forward. Here's Brad McLeod. He's the president of Sea Lovers Fish and Chips. They're a, an advertiser here on the show on the show yesterday speaking about the premier's communication here. Have a listen. I think the provincial government uh, needs to go back and take a communication course uh, <laughs> on how they're handling things to leave people in a lurch like this and for the premier to do cryptic messages at news conferences mm-hmm. that aren't even for this subject not is beyond me on how, in my opinion, how lack and effort they've made to communicate with our industry and other industries throughout this pandemic. Okay, that's Brad McLeod in conversation with George Affleck on yesterday's show. Appreciate George uh, filling in yesterday. Okay, so we got the announcement coming up this afternoon. You expect maybe you're going to get an, an advance heads up here in the next half hour or so. Yeah, well, first off, yeah. they make great fish and chips, and if you're in yeah. the neighborhood, you definitely <laughs> pop by sea lovers. But, um, yeah, we're going to get a little clarity on, on where this is going. And, you know, one of the frustrating things watching that press conference last week, the premier stood up in front of the province and said, well, we can't tell you now because we don't want to give one industry advance notice or something, to which he said, oh, you're literally gee. at a press conference speaking to millions of people right now. Why don't you just tell everybody at the same time, right? That's the frustration oh, of the yeah. industry. It's a press conference to tell us you're going to have another press conference, right? And I think at this stage in the pandemic, we, we do expect a bit more from our uh, our leaders around that, that kind of messaging, right? So that, that's the frustration about it. But I also know that that's just my frustration, right? Because we're trying to get our industry reopened. Um, and I know deep, like the, the deep financial consequences of a lack of clarity in the business community. And, um, sure. and that's why everybody is, is kind of waiting with bated breath today to find out. So when I, when I learn what's happening in about a half an hour, we're going to start getting our message ready. I mean, we, we can't talk about it prior to the Premier's announcement. Uh, but we're really hoping for the good news that we need to get restarted um, and so we can get okay. back to work. Okay, Jeff, thanks for coming on today. My pleasure. Have a great day. All right, welcome back to the show. And here we go now with our great tax debate. Do high taxes actually produce happier people? Are the happiest countries in the world... Also, the most heavily taxed countries in the world. Let's discuss now with our panel. Jim Stanford is back. He's an economist with the Center Center for Future Work in Vancouver. Hi, Jim. Good morning, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. Also on the line, Chris Sims, BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Very pleased to welcome her back, too. Hi, Chris. Hi, thanks for having us. Okay, thanks to both of you. Jim, let me go first to you. You really got this ball rolling on social media uh, pointing out some of the tax rates of countries around the world and then comparing that to the happiness index, which is compiled by the by researchers at Gallup using Gallup polling uh, data. What did you find out? So you're saying if the countries with high taxes are also happy countries, is that right? Well, the thing that sparked me, uh, Mike, was I, I saw a post from the OECD. That's the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Uh, the rich industrial countries, and they put out a, a graph showing the comparative tax rates of different countries, adding up all of the different taxes that people pay and then dividing that as a share of their GDP. Right, right. there at the top of the list was Denmark, uh, yeah. 46% of GDP collected in taxes of different kinds, and that's what pays for this very extensive uh, social safety net and public services and free education and universities and so on. Well, I know Denmark consistently is the, ranked as the happiest country in the world. 
so I thought, wow, that's kind of interesting. And so I dug down a little bit uh, deeper. And in, in fact, if you look at the list of the 10 happiest countries last year, uh, according to the report, um, eight of the 10 are very high tax uh, countries. Uh, there are some exceptions, but in general, the more taxes you pay, and the, the key thing is here, then the more resources that are available ah. for things like health care, education, income redistribution, etc., the happier your society is. And it goes against the grain of this thing that taxes are a giant burden and that we're all oppressed by taxes. Uh, to the contrary, uh, taxes and using them wisely to provide these services is actually a path to liberation and happiness. What are some of these other happy countries that are also heavily taxed in the top 10 there? What else? Yeah, what other well, ones? Uh, interesting. I was actually a, a little bit out of date thinking Denmark was at the top. Denmark has been at the top for several years, but uh, this year they got passed by two other countries. Finland came first yeah. and Iceland uh, came second. Well, you know, they're both also very uh, highly taxed uh, countries. Uh, other high tax countries in that list, Netherlands, Germany, uh, Austria, Norway. Um, there are, as I say, some exceptions. Among the top 10 happy countries, there's two that have below average taxes. That's Switzerland and New Zealand. Uh, uh. So obviously, you know, I wouldn't for a second suggest that taxes are the only thing that determine whether you're happy or not <laughs> and the services that come with it. There's all kinds of other factors, of course, like uh, culture and health and the okay. natural environment, uh, etc. But okay. uh, there is a fairly robust statistical correlation between how much a society collects in taxes and then uses for public services and how happy, peaceful, and stable their societies okay. are. Okay, well, let's talk to the tax fighter, Chris Sims. Chris, what do you think about this? <laughs> well, I just want to say this is kind of a fun one, so it's very welcome to be talking about this as opposed to other things. Um, I would say that the, the happiness index is pretty subjective uh, on how people are measuring this, and I would also gently point out that the vast majority of those countries that were just listed are also capitalist countries that have democratic government systems, so people are free to pursue happiness. So it isn't necessarily that they are highly taxed. It's probably because they're not living under tyrannical, horrible governments, uh, that they have uh, the right to be presumed innocent until proven otherwise. All of those very cherished fundamentals uh, that are important to a healthy, happy democracy. So I would argue that that plays a much bigger role than whether or not somebody is taxed uh, out the yin-yang. Just to give you an example, uh, to the South, for example, if you take a look at the happiest states among the United States, Utah is consistently either the first or second uh, highest in happiness for their states. And they're also one of the lower taxed ones. So while I understand it's kind of fun to chat about taxation when it comes to happiness, I, you know, we don't think that that's the reason why folks are happy. And also, uh, a very good point that Jim made is if it's used wisely. Uh, we aren't against all taxation. We're against wasteful spending and too high of taxation. And frankly, when we have the national debt over a trillion dollars now, and they're clocking through more than 17.5 million per hour added on to that national debt, that makes people the opposite of happy. That makes them anxious. Okay. okay, well, let's take a look where Canada is here. Right now on that OECD list, Jim, in terms of the most heavily taxed countries in the world as a percentage of GDP, Canada is number seven, right? I'm looking at, looking uh, well, at the Canada's uh, Canada number. actually ranks right uh, on the average, uh, almost exactly equal to the OECD. So uh, by my reckoning on the graph, we ranked 20th out of the 36 oh. countries in the OECD and our aggregate tax ratio, 33.5%. Uh, 
uh, and we're a little bit above average on happiness. Uh, so, you know, we're not at the top of the list. Uh, we're not at the bottom of the list. Uh, and, and based on the relationship between taxes and happiness, we're actually a little bit happier than, <laughs> than just taxes alone well, would suggest. Okay, yeah, and that, because... again, shows that we've got other things going for us in terms of social cohesion and quality of life, et cetera, et cetera. The one point uh, Chris made that I would disagree with is this issue of democracy. I think democracy is important. And all of those countries with high tax... Uh, rates and high happiness are countries uh, also where the trust in government is very high. But all of the countries in the sample are democratic countries. There's no dictatorships among the 36 countries that are looked at in that sample. So uh, I agree, quality of government and making sure you're using those resources wisely is absolutely part of the formula. Okay, but you think that this is an argument for higher taxes, though, right? Uh, I think it is an argument that society is stronger and healthier and more stable and more peaceful and happier when we take a healthy share of what we produce in our economy and dedicate it towards the uh, services and infrastructure and public spaces and programs that allow for a decent, secure, fair life. And instead of saying everyone should be out for themselves and, you know, maximize your private wealth and get government out of your way, uh, the evidence suggests that when we come together as a society and say there are some things that work better when we provide them collectively, and in order to do that, we have to pay taxes. Okay, so what is the act of paying taxes that makes you happy? And none of us feel happy on midnight April 30th each year when we file that tax return. But uh, it is the benefits and the social cohesion that comes from taxes. That helped. What do you what do you say to that, Chris? We're all for social cohesion and happiness, but again, our point is is that those happy countries are democracies, and we think that that's one of the main reasons why folks are happy. It isn't because they're highly taxed. And again, there's tons of states in the United States that are really high on the happiness index, but they're on the bottom half of the taxation index. So, you know, I, th- I think it's kind of spurious reasoning to try to say that oh, it's because they have high taxes. No, uh, it's because they have democracies in reasonably functioning societies. That that they're most likely happy. So obviously folks are going to be happier in those situations. Our issue is waste. So for example, if you want to look at healthcare spending, when you turn around and allow, for example, here in British Columbia, uh, one of the public uh, health managers blowing hundreds of thousands of taxpayers' dollars on his own stuff, including housing, dry cleaning, all this fancy food, that's wrong. That money shouldn't be going to folks like that. That money should be going to frontline nurses. It should be going to paramedics. It should be going to fighting COVID. Our issue is wasteful spending and too high of taxation. All right. Welcome back to our great tax debate. Do higher taxes lead to happier countries? Jim Stanford and Chris Sims are my guests. Lots of calls. So let's go right to them. Joe and Burnaby. Hey, Joe. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, I lived in Switzerland for 23 years. Mm. Um, Very high taxes. Um, no, the people were not happy. <laughs> um, not not necessarily because of just the taxes, but um, genu- genuinely speaking, because of circumstances and stuff. But we we had extremely high high taxes. Okay, well, Switzerland right now is actually number four in the 2021 World Happiness Index. I don't know. I mean, maybe they're happier than you think. But Jim, what do you think of that? <laughs> Well, the other funny thing uh, is, Mike, that Switzerland's actually got uh, quite low taxes as well in an aggregate sense. So, again, whether taxes are high or low, people still tend to complain about them. That's the reality. But uh, yeah. the economic data shows that Switzerland's taxes are quite a bit lower than Canada's and quite a bit lower below 
the OECD average. So, um, you know, it, mm. it is probably an exception to the point that I'm making. Switzerland is relatively happy and relatively low tech. Uh, that doesn't mean okay. everyone's happy, obviously. Let's go to Rick and Delta. Hey, Rick. Well, I, I'm I'm kind of wondering how happy we're supposed to be here. We're fairly heavily taxed. Um, I don't know if this gentleman's noticed, but we have a major homeless problem. We have a major drug addiction problem. Pre-COVID, we had one of the worst uh, uh, traffic congestion problems in North America. So I, I, I wonder how happy we are when we pay all this money, and yet it doesn't equate to great social services and so on. Well, we're going down the list on the happiness scale. Canada right now in the current report number 15. We had been uh, 10 in earlier reports. Chris Sims, what do you think? Interesting that he raises that. And again, it's uh, what, what are we getting for the taxes that we're paying? And I think their caller brings up a great point. The cost of living, especially here in British Columbia and with, with what's going on with the opioid crisis, is really, really, truly saddening. And so, yeah, I think that's probably hitting our rankings quite a bit. And yet we are still paying very high taxes. So I don't see the correlation, unfortunately. I wish I did. Okay, Hugh on the line in Parksville. Hi, Hugh. Oh, good morning. Oh, thank you for taking my call. Yeah. I think the analysis is quite flawed. Uh, look, look at what what is included in taxes uh, and who is paying the taxes. Uh, generally speaking, a lot of the taxes come from income taxes. If uh, most of the taxes from income is paid by 10 or even up to 25 percent of the population, but uh, 100 percent of the population benefit, it's uh, pretty obvious that uh, people are going to be happy to have the 10% or 25% even uh, paying for their, their pleasures. <laughs> you do an analysis of the happy, you include the whole population, but really on paying the taxes, you maybe have only 10 or 25%. So any comparison about what makes the happier society uh, is kind of flawed on that uh, method of analysis. Okay, okay Jim, Sta- Jim Stanford, what do you say to that? Well, I, I kind of actually agree with you on this one, uh, Mike. Uh, the reality is we have a progressive tax system in Canada, so people who have more money pay more tax, and proportionately, uh, I think that's a reasonable proposition. Uh, we should collect more tax from those who are able to pay. Now, the people at the top end might not be happy about that, but the people at the top end are the minority. And for the clear majority of society, they are getting back more from government than they put in. And if you look at the data in Canada, at least two-thirds of Canadians get more back in public service value than they pay in taxes. So for them, it's a great bargain. And well, we are looking at averages. So in that regard, the majority rule. Go ahead, Chris. It all depends on how you slice it, too. It isn't just income taxes. So I'm not sure where you are right now, Jim, but here in B.C., we still have, for example, PST on pretty much everything in B.C. and surprisingly, even on used items. So say you're buying an older vehicle because that's all you can afford. You're actually paying a huge amount of PST on that thing. And even if you're low income, you're doing so. There's even things uh, taxes on used clothes at thrift stores. So lower wow. income folks are getting really hit hard here in B.C. Plus, we have really high carbon taxes, which hurts commuters and working families. So it depends on how you slice hmm. it. Okay, let's go to Carl in North Vancouver. Hey, Carl. Oh, hey. Hey, just the guy on the radio talking about how happy Denmark is. Denmark's in chaos. They're trying to boot out all the Syrians because they think they take up all the tax money. And there's protests in the street. It's the first time the left government took over there. Like, where's this guy getting his information from? Because the people there are definitely not happy. Well, they they have gone down the list. Uh, Jim, your thoughts? 
Uh, well, from one to third. So they're still ranked as one of the happiest countries in the world. So I'm not for a minute saying that every every one of those countries is perfect, but they've got longer life expectancy, they've got better health, they've got better happiness, uh, and they have a very high standard of living. So this idea that taxes are this enormous burden on our backs is absolutely wrong when you look at the international comparison. Al on the line in Surrey. Hi, Al. Hi. There's many factors, and this study isn't up to date. Some of the smaller countries, population-wise, don't allow foreigners to buy uh, residential property or agriculture. Also, if they have uh, power systems or uh, anything else, it is state-controlled completely, and foreigners do not get to control it. So that's some of the happiness factor. All right. Thanks for that. Let's go to Pete in Qualicum Beach. Hi, Pete. Uh, Hi. Um, I think you guys, uh, to some degree, are missing the point. I think the whole reason that Denmark and other such countries are successful is because the people who live there have basically no worries. If they have a medical problem, it's taken care of. If they've got a drug problem, it's taken care of. Education is all free, university education, whatever. They can choose basically what they want to to do, and and they have cradle-to-grave protection. Okay, well, I I suspect, Jim, you'd, you'd, you'd agree with that. Or would yeah. you? No, absolutely. Yeah. That's, the, that's the whole point. And where do those things come from? They come okay. from public services that are paid for through taxes. So, okay, what do you uh, say to again, that, Chris? it's not the act of paying taxes that makes you happy. It's what you get from it. And the, the earlier caller who mentioned we've got problems here, uh, Rick mentioned it, homelessness, drugs, traffic congestion. How are we going to solve those problems? We're going to solve those problems by putting resources effectively managed uh, to solving those problems, and we'll be happier as a result. But the other side of the coin is that we have to pay taxes for that. Okay, Chris, you get the last word. we got 30 seconds here. The key phrase there is effectively managed, and unfortunately we aren't seeing the oversight uh, in order to bring about transparency that we need here. So, for example, here in BC, we need an Auditor General that is 100% in charge of cities and towns, and they need to be robust, they need to be well-funded, and they need to be effective, because right now we got a lot of money going out the door, we still have people suffering, and we're not getting a lot to show for it. All right, guys, thanks for a good discussion. I appreciate it. As always, Jim Stanford there, Center for Future Work in Vancouver. Chris Sims, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Thanks a lot for all your calls on the open line there. We couldn't get to everybody. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about vaccine passports now. Should people be required to show proof that they've been vaccinated against COVID-19 to travel again? What about other activities domestically inside our own country? How about going to a restaurant or a movie or sports event or a concert? Should you be required to prove that you've been vaccinated to get into these large public gatherings again? Some other countries are doing that. Check out what's going on in Israel where they brought in the green pass system, as they call it, kind of like a barcode that you have to show and get scanned before you can go into, say, a soccer game or a restaurant. Should Canada do the same thing? Now, Canada is looking at a vaccine passport for travel. That much is clear. The government taking a close look at that. Other countries are bringing in travel restrictions uh, requiring proof of vaccination. Canada may have no choice but to do something similar. Have a listen to this now. Here is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau now speaking on vaccine passports. The idea of certificates of vaccination for international travel uh, exist already and are well established. There are countries in the world where you uh, shouldn't go unless you can prove uh, prove that you've been vaccinated against certain tropical diseases, for example. That's well established. Um, but the idea of certificates of vaccination for domestic use to decide, you know, if 
who can go to a concert or who can uh, go to a particular restaurant or engage in certain activities does bring in questions of equity, uh, questions of fairness. Okay, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau speaking there. Certainly the government seems to be more open to an international travel vaccine passport, uh, seem less enthusiastic about domestic restrictions requiring proof of vaccinations, other countries going in that direction. Really interesting issue that's going to be even more important here in the days ahead. Let's discuss now with my guest, Brenda McPhail from the Canadian Civil Liberties. She's the Director of Privacy, Technology and Surveillance. I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hi. Hi, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. Really appreciate it. What do you think about this issue? Let's talk about the travel uh, vaccine passport, first of all. I wonder if Canada will have any choice on, on that one. If other countries are bringing something in that's similar, we'll probably have to do the same thing, I imagine, right? I think that that is probably true. When it comes yeah. to international travel, Canada has to, you know, accord with global partners. And it's always, I mean, it's never our right to enter a foreign country, it's a privilege. Yeah. Um, and so those countries do have the ability to set conditions when a Canadian wants to go to a foreign jurisdiction. Right. And we've already seen other countries and, and regions going in this direction. Like I believe the European Union, right, is bringing in like a digital green certificate document requirement. So, I mean, Canada Canada will like very likely have to do the same thing. I think that's, that's very likely. And, and the rights yeah. issues there are around... Um, the fact that there are many, many countries in the world that don't have the same access to vaccines that right, right. wealthier countries like us do, right? So that's, that, that's the real concern there. Canada is actually, despite all the concern about the length of time it took us to get vaccines um, gabbed into arms, we're pretty far ahead of the pack. There are lots of countries that don't have people vaccinated, so that's where some of the rights issues are there. But in terms of our choice in the matter, it's likely yeah. to be out of Canada's hands. We heard Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in that clip point out that international requirements for vaccines for travelers are, are already established. If you think of like yellow fever, for example, where there's a requirement for vaccination and certificates in, in some countries. Do you think that uh, COVID-19 is a kind of in a similar category, like the way he described there? That's actually a super interesting precedent or interesting question, because yeah. the yellow va uh, fever vaccination is the one that's always talked about. Yeah. Um, what's interesting and not usually talked about is the fact that yellow fever is actually the only vaccination that is explicitly mandated in international health regulations. Mm. Other co countries can um, choose to ask for other ones, but yellow fever is the only mandatory one in the international health regulations. Yeah. Um, and there used to be some, and it's because it's passed on by an insect. It's not passed human to human. Um, so it's you know really clear what countries um, you're at risk. Um, this question of whether a human-to-human -human disease falls into the same category is a really interesting one. Okay, speaking to Brenda McPhail from the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, maybe the bigger one or the trickier one is, is whether this government could bring in any kind of domestic rules or requirements around vaccination, whether it's for places that you go or the job that you can hold. What are your thoughts or concerns there? Do you have concerns around equity or individual liberties or rights when it comes to domestic requirements to show proof of vaccinations? Absolutely. The Canadian yeah. Civil Liberties Association has significant concerns um, when it comes to domestic uh, implementation. I mean, at its core, the vaccine passport 
um, is kind of a radical idea. We're not accustomed in our Canadian democracy to being asked to show papers in order to access public services or to move around in public or private spaces. And a vaccine passport really is saying, we're going to allow you access to public activities, possibly everything from riding transit to going grocery shopping to going to a ball game or a concert. We're going to predicate that on whether or not you've made a socially acceptable decision about your health and whether you can prove it. Uh, That's actually when you when you think about it in those terms, it's kind of a radical idea for Canada. Yeah, no, it really is. And, th- and there'll be certainly be a debate about it. And who knows, maybe even a, a legal battle as well, I, I suspect. What about for um, if you would be required to show proof of vaccination to hold a particular job? Like we already see uh, long-term care facilities, for example, here in BC. We've got the Long-Term Care Association has been suggesting that maybe that should be a requirement. If you want to work with vulnerable seniors in a care home, that maybe you should be required to get vaccinated as a condition of that of holding that job. Are there any civil liberties concerns there? <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> I mean that's a that's a really difficult question, um, and there's always a balancing act to uh, undertake when it comes to rights and freedoms. Yeah. So on the one hand, um, it's demonstrated that the vaccine is really effective at protecting people from getting very sick or dying. On the other hand, we don't generally, we don't have mandatory vaccination policies in Canada generally. There are a small number of jobs now that do things like require staff to get a flu vaccination, and that's very controversial. Um, So there's a lot of sort of legal wrangling that needs to be, and nuance that needs to be considered when we start talking about making a vaccination mandatory for any one category of people. When it comes with to personal support workers, there's the added level of concern because we know that personal support workers um, are often racialized. They're often, I mean, they're lower income. They tend to be people who very much need their jobs and they don't have a lot of bargaining power when it comes to standing up for their rights. Um, so when you're talking about sort of vulnerable populations, then the rights issues get magnified. Yeah, what about the case law on that one? Do you think that one would end up in court and maybe in front of a judge? I would think that it would be quite likely to end up in court. There are some precedents uh, for it, uh, but this is also really new ground. So I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if there wasn't a a significant legal case moving forward at the point that somebody decided the vaccination was going to be mandatory. Right. How about university and college and university campuses? It's interesting to look south of the border in the United States and we see uh, a lot of universities have started to say, okay, we want to get back to normal on university and college campuses, but if you want to attend classes in person on campus, we expect you to be vaccinated. Uh, We see that next door right here in Washington State, the governor just the other day uh, making a comment like that. There's a lot of private universities have gone in that direction in the United States, but we're seeing some public colleges and universities as well do that. So far, I guess there's no indication that'll happen in Canada, but do you have any concerns on that front too? Um, Absolutely. I mean, so the law in the U.S. is very different than the law here. We're accustomed to looking south of the border for precedence, um, but the actual, you know, Canada has a Charter of Rights and Freedoms um, that would make it particularly hard to mandate vaccinations. And of course, the issue is that, um, you know, if it's a voluntary choice to be vaccinated, which it is, 
um, but you have a ruling or a rule that says, but you can't come here if you're not vaccinated, then the issue is about coercion. Can you coerce someone into making a choice, a socially acceptable choice, in order to enjoy the same rights and privileges as others in society? Um, that's a problem. I mean, we're lucky. And so far in Canada, I have not seen any universities who are saying they're going to make it mandatory. I have seen some of them that have made statements that are saying we strongly encourage our students to be vaccinated. We're considering offering incentives, um, like scholarship, like being um, allowed to enter into a, for a draw or competition for a special scholarship for vaccinated students. Wow. And that's a, that's a great way to go. That's, you know, giving students motivation to be vaccinated, but letting them maintain the choice. Because we have to remember, there are people... Um, who are medically unable to be vaccinated. There are people um, who have sincere religious beliefs that make accepting some of the vaccines difficult for them. So we do have to consider um, those people as well when we're talking about something as fundamentally as important as a university education. Could they not bring in a system with some reasonable exemptions for the small minority of people who might fit that category maybe they can't get vaccinated because they have allergies or maybe like you said they've got religious convictions that would prevent it i mean didn't in ontario didn't they bring in some mandatory vaccine requirements for public schools in ontario with some exemptions allowed along the along the lines you described there yeah so in ontario it's not a mandatory vaccine requirement but it is mandatory parental reporting of their child's vaccination status to the school board Mm. Um, and there are, as you say, um, you know, reasonable exemptions to, so that um, people who, you know, kids who are medically unable to be vaccinated um, are able to be exempt. Parents are able to register religious or conscientious objections to vaccination. And right. there are some hoops that they have to jump through to do that. Um, there's a difference when it comes to schools and school boards and sort of the broader idea of vaccine passports for a wider range of places. Mm -hmm. um, because there you don't just have one decision-making body that is regulated by the states, like the school boards, who are looking at those proofs and applying the exemptions. Um, you've basically potentially got anybody and everybody who owns a business or drives a bus or runs a concert um, asking to see those documents and then making choices about people. Uh, so... The broader this goes, uh, the more concerns that we'd have about issues around discrimination in particular. Okay, fascinating issue. We're following it closely. Thanks a lot for coming on with your thoughts on it today. Thank you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about the Metro Vancouver gang war. Evidence now that the violence is spreading beyond the border of Metro shootings in Calgary and Nanaimo now linked to the deadly gang war in Vancouver. I've got a great guest standing by, but first, have a listen to this extended report here now from global news reporter Emad Agahi. After Thursday's fatal shooting near a Nanaimo Wendy's restaurant and Saturday's daytime homicide in Calgary, 
One of the first questions local investigators were tasked with answering was if there's a connection in each case to gang violence in Metro Vancouver. The answer both times now appears to be yes. And all I can hear is the cop sirens and choppers coming and yeah, it was really crazy. Responding to gunshots, Saturday police in Calgary found a body inside a car parked in a back alley. I overheard from the back alley somebody yelling like he's dead and someone said like, what the bleep do you mean he's dead? Sources tell Global News the victim is Gurkirt Kalkat, a man with ties to British Columbia, whose brother, Jaskirt Kalkat, was also killed outside a Burnaby Cactus Club earlier this month. Every little brother looks up to his big brother and they want to be like them, right, in most cases. So you're within that family peer group, you're going to do what they do. You're going to want to be what they are. What happened in Nanaimo and Calgary is a reminder. Experts say that Metro Vancouver gangsters have connections well outside our local boundaries. It, it's very international, the gangs from Vancouver. They seem like little street kids. They're not very old and stuff. But these guys are traveling all over the world. It was inevitable and imminent to some degree that we were going to see some level of um, overarching nexus and interconnection uh, to some of the other homicides that are happening in Canada. Three suspects with ties to the Lower Mainland were taken into custody after the Nanaimo shooting and have since been released. The RCMP, they're asking the public to come forward if they remember seeing occupants of a pearl white 2003 Cadillac Escalade similar to this sometime. In the past week, Emadagahi, Global News. Okay, that report from Emadagahi. There you heard uh, several voices in that report, including uh, former police officers Doug Spencer and Cal Dosange. As we continue talking now about the spreading gang violence outside the borders now of Metro Vancouver, let's discuss now with my guest Stephen Matelski. Stephen is one of Canada's top experts on organized crime, a lecturer at Queen's University in Ontario. He's the author of the book, Undercover, Stories from the Underworld of Law Enforcement. I'm pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Stephen. Thanks so much for having me back, Mike. You bet. Thanks a lot for coming on once again. When Stephen, when you hear this type of uh, deadly violence spilling out to different cities, now we're hearing reports in Calgary and Nanaimo and targeted shootings there linked to the mayhem in Vancouver. As a guy who studies this, does that surprise you at all that this appears to be spreading? No, this doesn't surprise me at all. When you look at the number one racket these gangs are, are involved in, it's drug trafficking. And drug trafficking and importation is on an international level. And there are no boundaries, there are no borders when it comes to making profit and exerting violence to maintain territory. Or in this case in BC, we're seeing it in Calgary now, you know, this retaliatory, uh, you know, uh, back and forth with uh you know, revenge against these these groups that are fighting in in BC. Yeah, and we we see now a, a, a well recognized formula for how these hits take place. You get a brazen daytime shooting. You got a a, vic, a victim left for dead, often in a parked vehicle, and then you've got a getaway car that that's then set on fire and burned out a short distance away. So we continue to see this repeated over and over again. Are these hits typically, like in your experience with 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 crime in Canada, organized crime? Are these hits over drug dealing turf, or is this a more personal kind of revenge killings that we're seeing going on? I have to say, Mike, there is a combination of things going on in British Columbia because you you are 
we are seeing this violent retaliatory uh, aspect to it. But when you, everything in the underworld has a cause and effect, um, you know, the BC gangs, gangs in Ontario, other areas of Canada have had historical ties to other international groups like the Sinaloa cartel in Mexico, which is no longer in power in Mexico. And we're seeing a very uh, lot of turf wars and murders in Mexico right now. So that cause and effect with the drug trade on an international level is having those reverberating effects all the way up the West Coast into BC. You add in, you know, the, you know, I heard one of the, the sound clips, you know, the, the familiar aspect to these gangs with brothers getting killed, you know, blood thicker yeah. than water. So, you know, a lot of this violence is retribution. And yeah. in this world, and, and, and this is why I want to really emphasize, to especially your younger viewers, you know, us as human beings, we have this fight versus flight syndrome. Uh, you know, it's a physiological reaction when we perceive there's going to be harm to us. When you're in gang life, there's nowhere to run to. There's nowhere to hide. You know, I said this before on your show, Mike. There's three ways out of gang life. Death, jail, and becoming a government witness. So, yeah. you know, I, I can I can tell you straight off the bat, it is much better being in a witness protection-like program than it is in a coffin or a jail cell for life. Speaking of Stephen Matelski, he's one of Canada's top experts on unorganized crime. You mentioned that uh, these criminal networks can extend beyond like a city or, or even a province. Like, can you talk a little bit about some of the, the links between uh, the gang war that we're seeing here in British Columbia and some of the, the links to, let's say, in Ontario, where you're based? Yeah, absolutely. You know, out in BC, uh, the Vancouver Police Department released the top six uh, just a week, a week and a half ago. And right. two of those members are there on there are the Dio brothers. Their third brother, Sukhvir Dio, uh, moved out from BC as part of the uh, Independent Soldiers Gang and, and relocated to just outside of Toronto in Oakville, Ontario, lived in this $8 million mansion, and very quickly established a cocaine importation network out in the Toronto area with direct links to the Sinaloa cartel. And, you know, in 2016, it's five years next month, Mike, uh, unknown suspects tracked uh, Sukhvir down and, you know, his Range Rover, he was targeted. They had uh, remote GPSs underneath it. And he was gunned down in broad daylight uh, at Young Street and Eglinton Avenue in the city of Toronto five years ago. So if you look at just list of enemies and, you know, who's involved, these gangs have this far-reaching uh, power to get to who they want to get to. And I can give you another quick example. Sure. In the Montreal mob, at the height of the Rizzuto crime family in Montreal, when Vito went away to a Colorado prison, there was a huge void and a turf war in Montreal where, where the Rizzuto family members were targeted. Moreno Gallo was a loyal soldier to the Rizzutos, and his loyalty wavered a little bit while Vito was in jail. No one expected Vito to come back, but he did. And when he started taking inventory, Moreno said, you know what, I'm retiring from the mob. I'm going to Mexico. There is no uh, Freedom 55. There are no RSPs in organized crime. And sure enough, the Montreal mob was able to whack him on a patio in Mexico. There is nowhere wow. to run. When you're in that life, it's in by the gun and out by the gun. And I've always said I don't condone anyone getting hurt. But if you choose that lifestyle, you have very limited options and a short lifespan. Okay, Stephen, final question for you. Who is winning this war right now? Is it the gangsters or is it the cops? I mean, I know these cases are 
difficult to crack. There's often witnesses who are uncooperative. The silence is pervasive at times. But when you take a look at some of the tactics, like you mentioned last week, we saw law enforcement in British Columbia and Vancouver last week take the very unusual step of publicly naming and identifying some of what they said are the most dangerous gangsters in in the metro region as as a way to warn the public. Do you think that's a good tactic, and will it help at all uh, as police are to combat this violence? You know, it's a very difficult question to answer, Mike, in terms of the list, first first and foremost, because there are so many other people that are involved in this life, in this, in this gang life. And, you know, I think the biggest losers in this whole thing, um, you know, the people who are going to suffer the most, I'm a huge proponent of victimology, is the, the families of these victims. You know, most of these families aren't involved in the gang life. So, you know, behind all the sensational headlines and the news clips, you know, there are real families behind these murders. And the, the gang violence has really extended beyond the gang world. They thrive on violence and intimidation. And that violence and intimidation, given all these daylight brazen shootings where, you know, an innocent bystander is going to get killed if this yeah. isn't curtailed. And this violence and intimidation sadly has extended to you know creating this hysteria and fear in the public and it's it's rightfully so so are the police winning are the gang i don't think anybody's winning in this in this gang this incidents right now it is uh it's like putting a band-aid on a, on a leaky dam the deputy chief mentioned uh overt and covert strategies i think you know, the, the best way to deal with this is to get a lot of these violent offenders behind bars. It is a better opportunity to not only take them off the street, hopefully longer sentences, but, you know, that is where there's a viable, ripe opportunity to maybe convert some of them into government witnesses to tackle this problem. All right, Stephen, I always appreciate your expertise on this. Thanks a lot for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me again, Mike. Okay, we're under 90 minutes away now from BC's reopening plan. The vaccination rate is up. COVID cases going down. Now officials set to release a roadmap to relaxing pandemic restrictions. That is happening at 1 p.m. Live coverage right here on CKNW. Lots of anticipation for this announcement. What will reopen and when? Will it include recreational sports our show contributor john jang spoke with the lower mainland football association on what they're hoping to hear this afternoon john good morning mike the clock keeps ticking away as we wait for the one o'clock announcement this afternoon with dr bonnie henry and health minister adrian dix now we assume that this is going to be an easing of restrictions that would impact a wide range of different industries sectors and businesses but One thing we are anticipating is that rec sports will be touched on today with an update on how leagues, association, and teams can proceed in the near future. With that in mind, Chris Clark, the president of the Chilliwack Giants Minor Football Association, joins us now. And Chris, with this 1 o'clock announcement in mind, what are you hoping to hear from Dr. Bonnie Henry later today? Uh, I mean, yeah, definitely we're we're hoping to see uh, a loosening of the restrictions, which I think should be coming, crossing our fingers. Uh, but we're really just looking for some clear direction on on what the rules are going to be and and some quick movement on it. Um, you know, we've got two weeks left in our flag season. 
we've been doing skills competitions in, in lieu of games, as games are not allowed right now in, in the phase two where we are. But uh, it would be really nice to be able to play games in these last couple of weeks. So we're just we're looking for things to uh, to be clear and and quick. I guess are the the two things that we're looking for. That spring season wraps up in two weeks, like you said, and that's the Flag League, if I'm not mistaken. So I'm wondering, Chris, what is on the docket for the summer? Are there plans to bring back tackle football, if that is permitted, as per the announcement today? That's correct. Yeah, that's our spring flag season. Uh, it wraps up uh, early June, as, as it will again this year. And then uh, towards the end of June, middle, middle to end of June, is our tackle uh, and, uh, and U8 flag season, and, and that's our summer and fall program from the end of June until uh, October, November. So we're, we're looking to, uh, to hopefully have things opened up to a, a point where we can have a, reg- a semi-regular tackle season anyways, and, and uh, uh, similar to what we had last year at, at the very least, which was uh, intra-squad games uh, and scrimmages uh, against our own teams and, and uh, some regional teams. But... Um, we're just we're looking to uh, to constantly make, try to make tackle football safer for our players and whatever new things that we have to incorporate. That'll just be part of our overall health and safety plan. Clarification, clarity, clear and concise guidelines. Those are just some of the things that you and your team are hoping for out of this announcement today. But right now, what are the main points of confusion for you, the parents, the players, uh, just in terms of what is appropriate and allowed, and what is still against the rules what is the main point of confusion well I, I think i think everyone understands the rules i think at this point uh you know everyone's been really good about following them we're just starting to get to that point of covid fatigue I, i've heard that that phrase out there uh, uh numerous times and it, it is starting to apply to probably not just our youth our youth football but all youth sports and sports in general is that people are looking for uh, you, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to get as much done inside the, the boundaries of, of the rules as, as we can. Uh, you know, it's tough to turn on the TV and, and you watch an NHL playoff game with thousands of fans in the stands in the States or, you know, thousands of fans in a, at a baseball game and, and, and we're stuck uh, not even being allowed to play ta- uh, flag football. So it's, it's difficult there to do that. So, so it would be definitely nice to open things up a little bit more and, and, and be able to do a little bit more closer to uh, an actual game or, or how the sport's supposed to be played. And Chris, the Minor Football Association, as I know you know, has had a very different season, a challenging season. What has that been like for staff members or volunteers who might finally look ahead to the future with some hope and thinking to themselves, depending on how this announcement goes today, it's not going to be too long before we can go back to the way things were. Yeah, I mean, we are a 100% volunteer organization, so we don't have paid staff. So we didn't have to lay people off or rehire uh, as things ebbed and flowed there at all. But um, it, it will be nice to be able to, to put some firm plans in motion. That's been the biggest frustration is we just don't know week to week, month to month, what is going to be allowed, what we're going to be able to plan for. And, and you know, we have summer tournaments that we normally are hosting, and we're not even able to plan those because we're not sure what the restrictions are going to be next week, let alone two or three months from now. So that's, that's the biggest thing is, is just being able to put some solid plans in motion would be nice and, uh, and just be able to, to work on those and, and get the kids back on the field. All right. He is Chris Clark, president of the Chilliwack Giants Minor Football Association. Appreciate you joining us here today, Chris. And fingers crossed that this announcement is everything that you and your team are hoping for. That's right. Thanks a lot, John.
Okay, that was our own John Jang there in conversation with Chris Clark about the return of amateur football in BC. They hope the reopening plan coming down at 1 p.m. this afternoon. Live coverage right here on CKNW. John joins me now. Hey, John, did you get your set as you asked around about amateur mm-hmm. sport and recreational sport in, in the Lower Mainland? Did you get a sense of optimism or pessimism out there today? I think the, the the answer there is careful optimism. Like they feel like they want to get their hopes up, but they worry that if they do so, Mike, that their hearts are going to get crushed. So they want yeah. to hear good news. They're ready for these good news. They've been working so hard and diligently, the volunteers, staff members, everyone uh, to get to this point, but they're still not uh, putting all their chips in. I'll put it that way. Okay, good interview there with the guy from the uh, Lower Mainland, with one of the Lower Mainland Football Associations. How about other rec sports and leagues and associations out there? How are they feeling today? Yeah, you know, I've reached out to uh, certain associations like Via Sports, uh, Urban Rec, and there's also the same level of excitement. And for them, you know, they feel just so appreciative that uh, so many of their athletes and uh, customers, more than anything, have still decided to register, knowing that they can't technically play games until that green light has been issued by the provincial government. But they were so excited to maybe just get to the possibility of playing some sports this year that they were ready to throw down some money and just have their registration already booked in the event that this green light does happen to come either today or maybe sometime soon down the road. Right. And everyone looking forward to maybe a semi-normal summer coming up. And I don't know whether Little League Baseball might be allowed Mm. to operate this summer. I guess we'll see. Do you think it's going to look, what do you think the summer is shaping up for yourself? What do you think? Uh, it's, it's looking pretty good. Again, I'm yeah. trying to be carefully optimistic. I don't want to get too many people's hopes up, but uh, the idea of having like you know a, a summer softball league or things mm-hmm. like that nature, uh, dodgeball, if that's what you're into, maybe beach volleyball, that's a popular thing around this uh, region of the world. Uh, those things look more promising today than I would have said even a couple of weeks ago, Mike. So just, just the fact that these COVID cases are going down, that's a really good thing. Okay, I mean, some sports are allowed to operate right now, like you know, golf course is still open, right? That's like, right. what's what are the what's the safest sport out there right now? Well, I think it's the one that you just mentioned there. I think it's yeah. golf, and there's a sure. reason why so many golf courses around this province have been so busy uh, almost all the time while the weather's holding up because people know that okay, you know, you don't really play golf with a huge group of people, anyways. You usually stand six feet apart. You're not making any noise. There's no crazy parties going on. Uh, it's all socially distanced. So for me, if I had to go and play anything right now, uh, I'm going to play some golf. I'm not You're great right. at it, but that's what I would feel most comfortable at. All right, John, looking forward to this announcement, 1 o'clock this afternoon. Thanks for coming on. You got it. Thanks, Mike.